they had a suite at the plaza, but they must have had separate bedrooms, each of them leading off the main suite. In her book, Be My Baby, we get a little more insight into that with Ronnie Spector. One incident she described was the first time she'd seen like one guy having sex with a girl and other guys standing around watching in one of the bedrooms. So that was kind of a little spicy. Wow. As John Lennon used to say, if you want to see the Beatles, you got to see me foist. I believe she says it's one of the road managers. I do not believe she named him. Phil showed up in London at the end of January. He never came out and said it, but I could tell he didn't like the idea of us spending too much time with the Beatles. I didn't think his ego could stand the competition. The Beatles were leaving to start their first U.S. tour in a few days when John asked me if we wanted to fly back with them on their charter jet. I didn't have the nerve to ask Phil if it was okay, so I had my mom make the suggestion. You know, Phil, she told him, it might be good publicity if the girls went back on the jet with the Beatles. No, he told her, I've already bought their tickets. Nedra, Stella, and Mom and I were on a flight back to New York the very next day. The day after the Beatles landed, Murray Decay was on the phone trying to see if we could get him to see them. We also brought Nedra's boyfriend, Scott Ross, who worked with Murray Decay at Wynn's Radio. We barely had a chance to say hello to George and John before Murray started into his act. He flipped his tape recorder on and started asking dumb questions and making bad jokes about their hair. Then he started bragging about how he was the only guy allowed up to see the Fab Four. That's when he started calling himself the Fifth Beatle. The Beatles were only putting up with him because he was a big New York disc jockey, and they knew we had worked with them. But they thought it sucked <laughs> that he called himself the Fifth Beatle, and they couldn't wait to get rid of him. After Murray left, Estelle and I sat on the floor with John and George, playing records and talking until it got dark outside. A lot of people who'd been hanging around during that afternoon had already left. And I noticed that there were a lot more young girls in the suite than when the press was hanging around earlier. You didn't have to be a genius to figure out that a whole new scene was about to start. John gave a signal to Mal Evans, the Beatles' road manager, and he started walking around, kicking out anyone who didn't belong there. When he came up to Scott Ross, I spoke up for him. Scott's with us. John shot a look at me and said, We don't know him, Ronnie. He's got to leave. Oh, that's okay, Scott said. I was about to go anyway. Nedra and Estelle got up with him, and Estelle walked over to me. I think we'd better get out of here, Ronnie, she said quietly. If weird things were going to happen up there, I didn't want to miss them. I want to stay, I told her. After they left, I noticed that people seemed to be flocking into one of the bedrooms. John walked over and grabbed my hand. Come on, he said. Don't you want to see what's so interesting? Of course I did. I was dying to get a look at what it was the Beatles didn't want any strangers to see. The first thing I noticed in the bedroom was how crowded it was. Someone was standing on a chair taking pictures, but I couldn't see what he was photographing. When people saw that I was with John, they moved aside. That's how I got my first clear view of the naked girl on the bed. I moved in for a closer look, and it was the most amazing thing I'd ever seen. This girl was lying on the bed, and one of the guys in the Beatles' entourage was having sex with her, right in front of all these people. I have to admit I was fascinated. I was still a virgin, so this was educational for me. Every time this girl took a new position, my jaw dropped a little lower. John sat down on his big stuffed chair. Then he pulled me down on his lap. That's when I realized how aroused John was getting. I may have been dumb back then, but I knew when it was time to get off a guy's lap. So I did. 
I walked out of the room with John following close behind. Let's go have something to drink, he said. We went into John's private bedroom. I could see that he was trying to recapture the atmosphere we had in London. He even pointed out a big window that looked out over Manhattan's skyline and asked, Do you remember the window in London? It was dark in his room, so I walked over to the window. I could see the flickering lights of Times Square and Broadway in the distance, and I tried to point them out for John, but I could tell he was too worked up for sightseeing. I knew my feelings for John wasn't a sexual attraction. I loved his sense of humor, and I loved the way he could talk all night. But I was so head over heels in love with Phil that I knew it just wasn't going to happen between me and John. John, I told him, I think we've got a great friendship, but sometimes a guy can seem more like a brother than a boyfriend, and that's the way I think of you. I was already in the hotel hallway when John slammed the bedroom door shut. I got such a chill that I didn't bother looking back. The next day, John called my house acting like nothing had happened. We're going to make an escape today and we want to get some real New York food. Where should we go? I knew this was John's way of apologizing. I know just the place, I told him, if you don't mind coming up to Harlem. That night, the Beatles picked us up in a limousine for a feast of ribs and chicken at Sherman's Barbecue in Harlem, and they loved it. To hear more of this interview, go to Buskin with the Beatles on Patreon. That's www.patreon.com forward slash BWTB.